This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 61. In this place I will print an article which I wrote for the New York Herald the night we arrived. I do it partly because my contract with my publishers makes it compulsory, partly because it is a proper, tolerably accurate, and exhaustive summing-up of the crews of the ship and the performances of the pilgrims in foreign lands, and partly because some of the passengers have abused me for writing it, and I wish the public to see how thankless a task it is to put one's self to trouble to glorify unappreciative people. I was charged with rushing into print with these compliments. I did not rush. I had written news-letters to the Herald sometimes, but yet when I visited the office that day I did not say anything about writing a valedictory. I did go to the Tribune office to see if such an article was wanted, because I belonged on the regular staff of that paper, and it was simply a duty to do it. The managing editor was absent, and so I thought no more about it. At night, when the Herald's request came for an article, I did not rush. In fact, I demurred for a while, because I did not feel like writing compliments then, and therefore was afraid to speak of the cruise, lest I might be betrayed into using other than complimentary language. However, I reflected that it would be a just and righteous thing to go down and write a kind word for the hajis hajis are people who have made the pilgrimage, because parties not interested could not do it so feelingly as I, a fellow haji, and so I penned the valedictory. I have read it, and read it again, and if there is a sentence in it that is not fulsomely complimentary to captain, ship, and passengers, I cannot find it. If it is not a chapter that any company might be proud to have a body write about them, my judgment is fit for nothing. With these remarks I confidently submit it to the unprejudiced judgment of the reader. RETURN OF THE HOLY LAND EXCURSIONISTS THE STORY OF THE CRUISE to the editor of the Herald. The steamer Quaker City has accomplished at last her extraordinary voyage, and returned to her old pier at the foot of Wall Street. The expedition was a success in some respects, in some it was not. Originally it was advertised as a pleasure excursion. Well, perhaps it was a pleasure excursion, but certainly it did not look like one. Certainly it did not act like one. Anybody's and everybody's notion of a pleasure excursion is that the parties to it will of a necessity be young and giddy and somewhat boisterous. They will dance a good deal, sing a good deal, make love, but sermonize very little. Anybody's and everybody's notion of a well-conducted funeral is that there must be a hearse and a corpse, and chief mourners, and mourners by courtesy, many old people, much solemnity, no levity, and a prayer and a sermon withal. Three-fourths of the Quaker City's passengers were between forty and seventy years of age. There was a picnic crowd for you. It may be supposed that the other fourth was composed of young girls, but it was not. It was chiefly composed of rusty old bachelors and a child of six years. Let us average the ages of the Quaker City's pilgrims and set the figure down as fifty years. Is any man insane enough to imagine that this picnic of patriarchs sang, made love, danced, laughed, told anecdotes, dealt in ungodly levity? In my experience they sinned little in these matters. 
No doubt it was presumed here at home that these frolicsome veterans laughed and sang and romped all day, and day after day, and kept up a noisy excitement from one end of the ship to the other, and that they played blind man's buff, or danced quadrilles and waltzes on moonlight evenings on the quarter-deck, and that at odd moments of unoccupied time they jotted a laconic item or two in the journals they opened on such an elaborate plan when they left home and then scurried off to their whist and euchre labors under the cabin lamps. If these things were presumed, the presumption was at fault. The venerable excursionists were not gay and frisky. They played no blind man's buff. They dealt not in whist. They shirked not the irksome journal, for, alas, most of them were even writing books. They never romped, they talked but little, they never sang, save in the nightly prayer-meeting. The pleasure-ship was a synagogue, and the pleasure-trip was a funeral excursion without a corpse. There is nothing exhilarating about a funeral excursion without a corpse. A free, hearty laugh was a sound that was not heard oftener than once in seven days about those decks, or in those cabins, and when it was heard it met with precious little sympathy. The excursions danced on three separate evenings, long, long ago, it seems an age, Quadrilles of a single set made up of three ladies and five gentlemen, the latter with handkerchiefs round their arms to signify their sex, who timed their feet to the solemn wheezing of a melodeon. But even this melancholy orgy was voted to be sinful, and dancing was discontinued. The pilgrims played dominoes when too much Josephus or Robinson's Holy Land researches or book-writing made recreation necessary, for dominoes is about as mild and sinless a game as any in the world, perhaps, excepting always the ineffably insipid diversion they call croquet, which is a game where you don't pocket any balls, and don't caram on anything of any consequence, and when you are done nobody has to pay, and there are no refreshments to saw off, and consequently there isn't any satisfaction whatever about it. They played dominoes till they were rested, and then they blackguarded each other privately till prayer-time. When they were not seasick they were uncommonly prompt when the dinner-gong sounded. Such was our daily life on board the ship, solemnity, decorum, dinner, dominoes, devotions, slander. It was not lively enough for a pleasure-trip, but if we had only had a corpse it would have made a noble funeral excursion. It is all over now, but when I look back the idea of these venerable fossils skipping forth on a six-months picnic seems exquisitely refreshing. The advertised title of the expedition, The Grand Holy Land Pleasure Excursion, was a misnomer. The Grand Holy Land Funeral Procession would have been better, much better. Wherever we went, in Europe, Asia, or Africa, we made a sensation, and, I suppose I may add, created a famine. None of us had ever been anywhere before. We all hailed from the interior. Travel was a wild novelty to us, and we conducted ourselves in accordance with the natural instincts that were in us, and trammeled ourselves with no ceremonies, no conventionalities. We always took care to make it understood that we were Americans. Americans! When we found that a good many foreigners had hardly ever heard of America, and that a good many more knew it only as a barbarous province away off somewhere, that had lately been at war with somebody, we pitied the ignorance of the old world, but abated no jot of our importance. 
many and many a simple community in the eastern hemisphere will remember for years the incursion of the strange horde in the year of our lord eighteen sixty seven that called themselves americans and seemed to imagine in some unaccountable way that they had a right to be proud of it we generally created a famine partly because the coffee on the quaker city was unendurable and sometimes the more substantial fare was not strictly first class and partly because one naturally tires of sitting long at the same board and eating from the same dishes. The people of those foreign countries are very, very ignorant. They looked curiously at the costumes we had brought from the wilds of America. They observed that we talked loudly at table sometimes. They noticed that we looked out for expenses, and got what we conveniently could out of a franc, and wondered where in the mischief we came from. In Paris they just simply opened their eyes and stared when we spoke to them in French. We never did succeed in making those idiots understand their own language. One of our passengers said to a shopkeeper, in reference to a proposed return to buy a pair of gloves, Allons, restez tranquille, maybe vi comme un day. And would you believe it, that shopkeeper, a born Frenchman, had to ask what it was that had been said. Sometimes it seems to me, somehow, that there must be a difference between Parisian French and Quaker City French. The people stared at us everywhere, and we stared at them. We generally made them feel rather small, too, before we got done with them, because we bore down on them with America's greatness until we crushed them. And yet we took kindly to the manners and customs, and especially to the fashions of the various people we visited. When we left the Azores we wore awful capotes, and used fine-tooth combs successfully. When we came back from Tangier in Africa we were topped with fezes of the bloodiest hue, hung with tassels like an Indian scalp-lock. In France and Spain we attracted some attention in these costumes. In Italy they naturally took us for distempered Garibaldians, and set a gunboat to look for anything significant in our changes of uniform. We made Rome howl. We could have made any place howl when we had all our clothes on. We got no fresh raiment in Greece, they had but little there of any kind. But at Constantinople how we turned out! Turbans, scimitars, fezes, horse-pistols, tunics, sashes, baggy trousers, yellow slippers—oh, we were gorgeous! The illustrious dogs of Constantinople barked their under-jaws off, and even then failed to do us justice. They are all dead by this time. They could not go through such a run of business as we gave them and survive. And then we went to see the Emperor of Russia. We just called on him as comfortably as if we had known him a century or so, and when we had finished our visit we variegated ourselves with selections from Russian costumes, and sailed away again more picturesque than ever. In Smyrna we picked up camel's hair shawls and other dressy things from Persia, but in Palestine—ah! In Palestine our splendid career ended. They didn't wear any clothes there to speak of. We were satisfied, and stopped. We made no experiments. We did not try their costume. But we astonished the natives of that country. We astonished them with such eccentricities of dress as we could muster. We prowled through the Holy Land from Caesarea Philippi to Jerusalem and the Dead Sea, a weird procession of pilgrims gotten up regardless of expense, solemn, gorgeous, green-bespeckled, drowsing under blue umbrellas, and astride of a sorrier lot of horses, camels, and asses than those that came out of Noah's Ark after eleven months of seasickness and short rations. 
If ever those children of Israel in Palestine forget when Gideon's band went through there from America, they ought to be cursed once more and finished. It was the rarest spectacle that ever astounded mortal eyes, perhaps. Well, we were at home in Palestine. It was easy to see that that was the grand feature of the expedition. We had cared nothing much about Europe. We galloped through the Louvre, the Pitti, the Uffizi, the Vatican, all the galleries, and through the pictured and frescoed churches of Venice, Naples, and the cathedrals of Spain. Some of us said that certain of the great works of the old masters were glorious creations of genius. We found it out in the guide-book, though we got hold of the wrong picture sometimes. And the others said they were disgraceful old daubs. We examined modern and ancient statuary with a critical eye in Florence, Rome, or anywhere we found it and praised it if we saw fit, and if we didn't we said we preferred the wooden Indians in front of the cigar-stores of America. But the Holy Land brought out all our enthusiasm. We fell into raptures by the barren shores of Galilee. We pondered at Tabor and at Nazareth. We exploded into poetry over the questionable loveliness of Esdraelon. We meditated at Jezreel and Samaria over the missionary zeal of Jehu. We rioted, fairly rioted, among the holy places of Jerusalem. We bathed in Jordan and the Dead Sea, reckless whether our accident insurance policies were extra-hazardous or not, and brought away so many jugs of precious water from both places that all the country from Jericho to the mountains of Moab will suffer from drought this year, I think. Yet the pilgrimage part of the excursion was its pet feature. There is no question about that. After dismal, smileless Palestine, beautiful Egypt had few charms for us. We merely glanced at it, and were ready for home. They wouldn't let us land at Malta, quarantine. They would not let us land in Sardinia, nor at Algiers, Africa, nor at Malaga, Spain, nor Cadiz, nor at the Madeira Islands. So we got offended at all foreigners, and turned our backs upon them, and came home. I suppose we only stopped at the Bermudas because they were in the program. We did not care anything about any place at all. We wanted to go home. Homesickness was abroad in the ship. It was epidemic. If the authorities of New York had known how badly we had it, they would have quarantined us here. The grand pilgrimage is over. Good-bye to it, and a pleasant memory to it, I am able to say in all kindness. I bear no malice, no ill-will toward any individual that was connected with it, either as passenger or officer. Things I did not like at all yesterday, I like very well to-day, now that I am at home, and always hereafter I shall be able to poke fun at the whole gang, if the spirit so moves me to do, without ever saying a malicious word. The expedition accomplished all that its program promised that it should accomplish, and we ought all to be satisfied with the management of the matter, certainly. Bye-bye. Mark Twain. I call that complimentary. It is complimentary. And yet I never have received a word of thanks for it from the Hajis. On the contrary, I speak nothing but the serious truth when I say that many of them even took exceptions to the article. In endeavoring to please them, I slaved over that sketch for two hours, and had my labor for my pains. I never will do a generous deed again. Conclusion Nearly one year has flown since this notable pilgrimage was ended, and as I sit here at home in San Francisco, thinking, 
I am moved to confess that day by day the mass of my memories of the excursion have grown more and more pleasant as the disagreeable incidents of travel which encumbered them flitted one by one out of my mind. And now, if the Quaker City were weighing her anchor to sail away on the very same cruise again, nothing could gratify me more than to be a passenger, with the same captain, and even the same pilgrims, the same sinners. I was on excellent terms with eight or nine of the excursionists, they are my staunch friends yet, and was even on speaking terms with the rest of the sixty-five. I have been at sea quite enough to know that that was a very good average, because a long sea-voyage not only brings out all the mean traits one has, and exaggerates them, but raises up others which he never suspected he possessed, and even creates new ones. A twelve-months' voyage at sea would make of an ordinary man a very miracle of meanness. On the other hand, if a man has good qualities, the spirit seldom moves him to exhibit them on shipboard, at least with any sort of emphasis. Now, I am satisfied that our pilgrims are pleasant old people on shore. I am also satisfied that at sea, on a second voyage, they would be pleasanter, somewhat, than they were on our grand excursion. And so I say, without hesitation, that I would be glad enough to sail with them again. I could at least enjoy life with my handful of old friends, they could enjoy life with their cliques as well. Passengers invariably divide up into cliques on all ships. And I will say here that I would rather travel with an excursion party of Methuselahs than have to be changing ships and comrades constantly, as people do who travel in the ordinary way. Those latter are always grieving over some other ship they have known and lost, and over other comrades whom diverging routes have separated from them. They learn to love a ship just in time to change it for another, and they become attached to a pleasant travelling companion only to lose him. They have that most dismal experience of being in a strange vessel, among strange people who care nothing about them, and of undergoing the customary bullying by strange officers, and the insolence of strange servants, repeated over and over again within the compass of every month. They have also that other misery of packing and unpacking trunks, of running the distressing gauntlet of custom-houses, of the anxieties attendant upon getting a mass of baggage from point to point on land in safety. I had rather sail with a whole brigade of patriarchs than suffer so. We never packed our trunks but twice, when we sailed from New York, and when we returned to it. Whenever we made a land jury, we estimated how many days we should be gone, and what amount of clothing we should need, figured it down to a mathematical nicety, packed a valise or two accordingly, and left the trunks on board. We chose our comrades from among our old tried friends, and started. We were never dependent upon strangers for companionship. We often had occasion to pity Americans whom we found travelling drearily among strangers, with no friends to exchange pains and pleasures with. Whenever we were coming back from a land journey, our eyes sought one thing in the distance first—the ship. And when we saw it riding at anchor with a flag apeak, we felt as a returning wanderer feels when he sees his home. When we stepped on board, our cares vanished, our troubles were at an end, for the ship was home to us. We always had the same familiar old stateroom to go to, and feel safe, and at peace, and comfortable again. I have no fault to find with the manner in which our excursion was conducted. Its program was faithfully carried out, a thing which surprised me, for great enterprises usually promise vastly more than they perform. 
it would be well if such an excursion could be gotten up every year, and the system regularly inaugurated. Travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness, and many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. The excursion is ended, and has passed to its place among the things that were. But its varied scenes and its manifold incidents will linger pleasantly in our memories for many a year to come. Always on the wing, as we were, and merely pausing a moment to catch fitful glimpses of the wonders of half a world, we could not hope to receive or retain vivid impressions of all it was our fortune to see. Yet our holiday flight has not been in vain, for, above the confusion of vague recollections, certain of its best-prized pictures lift themselves, and will still continue perfect in tint and outline after their surroundings shall have faded away. We shall remember something of pleasant France, and something also of Paris. Though it flashed upon us a splendid meteor and was gone again, we hardly knew how or where. We shall remember always how we saw majestic Gibraltar glorified with the rich colouring of a Spanish sunset, and swimming in a sea of rainbows. In fancy we shall see Milan again, and her stately cathedral, with its marble wilderness of graceful spires, and Padua, Verona, Como, jewelled with stars, and patrician Venice afloat on her stagnant flood, silent, desolate, haughty, scornful of her humbled state wrapping herself in memories of her lost fleets, of battles and triumph, and all the pageantry of a glory that is departed. We cannot forget Florence, Naples, nor the foretaste of heaven that is the delicious atmosphere of Greece, and surely not Athens, and the broken temples of the Acropolis, surely not venerable Rome, nor the green plain that compasses her round about, contrasting its brightness with her grey decay nor the ruined arches that stand apart in the plain and clothe their looped and windowed raggedness with vines. We shall remember St. Peter's, not as one sees it when he walks the streets of Rome and fancies all her domes are just alike, but as he sees it leagues away, when every meaner edifice has faded out of sight, and that one dome looms superbly up in the flush of sunset, full of dignity and grace, strongly outlined as a mountain. We shall remember Constantinople, and the Bosporus, the colossal magnificence of Baalbek, the pyramids of Egypt, the prodigious form, the benignant countenance of the Sphinx, Oriental Smyrna, sacred Jerusalem, Damascus, the pearl of the East, the pride of Syria, the fabled Garden of Eden, the home of princes and genii of the Arabian Nights, the oldest metropolis on earth, the one city in all the world that has kept its name, and held its place, and looked serenely on, while the kingdoms and empires of four thousand years have risen to life, enjoyed their little season of pride and pomp, and then vanished and been forgotten. End of The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain